Yo, today on the podcast we have one of my favorite artists of all time, coming from Philadelphia, Mr. G Love. Um, I've been listening to G Love, fuck, since I was in like eighth grade. Um, I celebrate his entire catalog. Um, yeah, it's insane to me that I get to collaborate. Um, and even chat with and just know people that I have such a deep relationship with their art. And G Love is one of those people. Um, his art has been a part of my life for many, many years. And every time he puts out a record, it runs pretty steady on my um, my playlist. You know, I bump his shit nonstop and still do. Um, we talk about the history of the record industry, um, our collab, other collabs he's done, you know, touring. But really, it was cool for me. He kind of gave me a dope history lesson on how, um, yeah, just how the record industry used to be in the 90s. It was a fucking crazy time. Um, but yeah, I'm going uh, to get into it. I hope you all uh, enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed it. And... Uh, Without further ado, Mr. G Love. Boom, G Love, welcome to the Sad Song Podcast. How you doing, bro? I'm doing good. How you doing, Drew? Doing all right, man. Herding herding cats this morning. Herding cats? Yeah. You just got, you know, kids going eighteen different directions. So like I'm yeah. sure you're kind of in the same world of like getting an hour to sit down and quiet is like <laughs> you know quite the scheduled task but <laughs> no doubt. how you been man how you been during the whole quarantine obviously neither of us are touring that's for sure yeah um i've been good man just been really grinding um you know especially you know march and april and may um they're just kind of like i'm thankful because we kind of just I kind of just got on doing shit the minute I got home from tour. Like, you know, I got home from tour on March 13th, I think it was a Thursday. And then, uh, you know, kind of had like that panic set in that weekend and then said, all right, what, what can I do? So I started doing, first I started doing like my hunker down sessions, doing, you know, just kind of posting a, a song from the catalog and how to play it briefly. And then that started going good. And then I started doing some live streams and benefiting some of the venues that we all play in circuit, like for the staff and stuff. So that yep. was good. And I'm um, still, I was doing two live streams. And I cut it back to one. And, you know, and then like, there's like a million like festival online benefits and everybody wanted to benefit. And, you know, I, I just say yes to everything. So we were doing a lot of stuff and um, doing lessons so it's it's just different kind of work than I've ever done, you know. Totally. To tell you the truth, now it's kind of slowing down a little bit, um, and we're kind of transitioning to starting to do some live in-person, you know, like backyard parties. Like we have um, our second one on Monday, you know, for like 20 people, kind of close to where we live at the Cape. So, yeah, that's kind of what's been going on, and uh, but it's been it's been an adjustment, you know. It's been great to be home with the family. Um, but it's certainly been, you know, an uncertain kind of, I think, kind of stressful time in a lot of ways for us musicians, you know, in a different way than usual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same, dude. I feel like I, I just started doing that, too. We just started uh, getting the 
getting the poke for private parties and stuff like that. And it's, yeah. oh, I'm excited to do it. Like, you know, man, it's just, it's just not the, you know, cause festival season, man. And when you got yeah. the whole rig and the whole band and it's like, we, we were just, we just like got over this, like kind of like sophomore hump where we just sold out the bluebird. We were going to play red rocks cool. for the first time this year. Yeah. So it was like, this was going to be our first summer that was like, boom yeah. yeah and you know and everything got rescheduled to next year so god willing like it'll still happen but yeah it's just a wild time you definitely were one of the people that i noticed like right away started doing different live Wait, streams true true hold on one second sorry yeah no worries Sorry, dog got out. Ah. No worries. Come on, girl. Come on. Um, sorry about that, dude. No worries. Real, real, it's easier when you're in the back of a tour bus. No one yeah, yeah. You. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, you know, man, you you definitely were like one of the first people I noticed that just were like, okay, boom, uh, songs from the vault, cracking beers with G Love, kids thing. Yeah been on it dude yeah man you know it was the same man we it was you know it sucks man it sucks to talk about because we were having a big year too like i had my new record was just out in january so you know this is going to be a big record release year for us and you know we were also playing red rocks um twice we twice with dirty heads and the avid brothers and you know, i think both shows were sold out it's like fuck and um yeah you know it's it's a big loss like it's a huge financial loss for everybody for like the you know for the guys and the crew and um you know it, that these guys you know they're probably not as financially stable you know as we are um so especially for the you know the guys and gals that that work for the bands that don't see the spotlight or can't really do the shit that we're doing at home right now. Yeah. You know, it's just tough, man. It's, it's, it's fucked, man. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out, man. I think I'm hopeful, you know, I'm really hopeful. Yeah. But I mean, if, for instance, I mean, you know, like, you know, uh, if we're not touring until 2021, you know, I don't know what, I mean, it's one thing to be off for a couple months and then it's another thing to be off for like almost a year or a year especially for people that don't have money socked away. Mm -hmm. um, so if everyone's, so yeah, like you, like you said, how's it going to shake out? Well, are people going to, some people aren't going to come back to it. They're going to have yeah. to move on to different careers. And that, that could very well be a lot of musicians as well. Yeah. I agree. You know? So it's, um, it's, it's, it's tough, you know, and then also like venues. Yeah. Venues. Yeah, venues are, are, are a lot of venues are going to be toast. A lot of independent promoters are going to be toast. Guys that, you know, we've all supported each other for so many years. And, and, you know, we thought our little niche of making music was kind of bulletproof. It has been, but this was the one thing that, and now we're going to be last of all the industries. We're kind of the ones that you need stability. You need peace. That's what, that's why we have rock and roll in America. Cause there's not bombs falling in our head in the first place. Right. right and um and if there were there wouldn't be <laughs> touring as well and 
of course, this is the thing that no one saw coming, mm-hmm. and we kept no control of it. So <laughs> it's yeah, man, surrender, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all we can do, man, is surrender to it. So I want to talk about music, obviously, with you. Um, hey, I've been listening to you for fucking ever, and and we'll get into that. Thanks. But like, um, I feel like something that you have that's really really special is that there is you know countless bands in existence um but there's a lot of bands that sound kind of similar right where you can be like oh yeah that was probably from this era in this part of the country and nobody dude from your records from your very first release to now like nobody sounds like you it is the most unique style and blend of I don't even know, dude. I mean, obviously there's like hip hop and blues in there, but there's this like, I don't know, dude. How the, how did it, how did yeah. it, like a few, a few questions. Uh, how did you link with the special sauce guys? And like, what, what were you listening to when you first started making music, man? Cause it's such a unique vibe. Man, thanks, Drew. That means a lot uh, coming from you. Um, um, yeah, man, I don't know. I mean, you know, I. For one thing, like, um, you know, I started playing guitar at a young age. When I was eight, I started taking lessons. And then from like eight to 13, I basically was taking, you know, guitar lessons once a week during the school year um, and learning how to play and sing mostly a lot of Beatles songs (laughs) Um, and like kind of just acoustic strumming stuff. And then I got the harmonica on the rack when I was like 15. And that was pretty cool. Um, and then, of course, I was like heavily influenced by Dylan and Neil Young. But and then I started writing songs, and that really became the catalyst. And the songs, you know, the, the writing of the songs was kind of a knee-jerk reaction to being, you know, a young person and trying to figure out, you know, you know, figure out myself and you know, express myself. And I found this wonderful outlet, and it was like, wow. I mean, it was such an amazing thing to have happen to me in my life. I found this passion, which has ended up being my life work, you know, since I was 16, you know, uh, 15 and 16. So, um, so that kind of got my start writing songs. And then I started going to, oh, cause so then a weird thing happened. The minute I started writing songs, I felt this need, like this strong pull to record them, you know, like on a boom box, cassette yeah. tape boom box, and then, you know, send them to like demo derbies or talent agencies or whatever I could and also just wanting to perform them um and so I've had this draw to stage from a young age and then I'll never forget like playing the talent show in 10th grade I had this band called Greenwood and it was like the 80s version of Peter Paul and Mary it was me uh, <laughs> it was it was me um a, my, my friend who was a straight edge Quaker skinhead and um, a little short, little chubby Jewish girl named Wendy Beck um, and myself. And we were singing these, you know, folk, folk tunes. And um, so, <laughs> sorry, I'm just trying to get wider in here. Ah, um, and and um, it was cool. But man, that applause we got at the town show that night. I was like, that was it. That was like, holy shit, that was, and I got interviewed by the school paper, and it was like, whoa! <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so, 
then the next thing that happened was I started going to open mic nights and I thought I was the only person interested in Bob Dylan, certainly kind of in my ninth, 10th grade, 80s classmates were listening to The Cure and stuff like that. Um, but turns out a lot of other people at the, you know, open mic nights were interested in Bob Dylan as well. So then I had this thing where I always wanted to do something original or just, I didn't want to, I had this thing in me that I didn't want to do something that I saw somebody else do. So I kept searching and um, so I went to this record store, you know, and I said, hey, is there anybody that plays acoustic, solo acoustic guitar, sings and plays harmonica on a harmonica rack and other than Bob Dylan or Neil Young? Uh, and they gave me a John Hammond record. John Hammond's, uh, interesting enough, John Hammond's father, uh, John uh, Henry Hammond signed Bob Dylan to Columbia. Uh, and John and Bob were best friends when they were, you know, young men, like, you know, 19, 20 in New York City in the early 60s. Mm -hmm. They both released their first record in 62. They both cut their first record, you know, when they were 20. Um, so I got John Hammond's record at, when I was 17. And then it was kind of thing like, well, Bob Dylan made his first record when he was 20. John Hammond made his first record when he was 20. So, of course, I have to make my first record when I'm 20. Like, that's when it has to happen, right? So that was kind of like a thing. Um, to me, it just, like, had to happen then. And that was the dream, to, to make a record and go tour the coffee house circuits. That was, that was my goal, you know? And then I met my band. Um, Dude, your band the coolest fucking drum and bass in like in my opinion man there's just even recording live there's just no better drum sounds on any records ever i think i just and and, and the bass and having the upright bass instead of the electric bass like just such a unique yeah it just didn't sound like anybody dude it was just was like could hear it from a mile away and know it was you guys well you want them <laughs> you can take them, man. Because <laughs> uh, there's some now. There's Jim and Jeff. Yeah, man. Really, kind of. Um, it's like that song, "Taking Care of Business." If you get in with the right group of fellas, you know you're bound to go far. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was, it was, man. To tell you the truth, like, so I moved to Boston. So you asked how I met the band. So that's the next part of the story. Was that I was a street musician in Philadelphia. I knew I wanted. I need, I, I had this thing, I had to get away. I had to get away yep. from everybody. I didn't want to be with my dog. I didn't want to be near my family. I didn't want to be by my friends or my girlfriend. I needed to just be with my guitar and not know anybody. And that's what I need to do to focus. So I moved to Boston, became a street musician and just shed and write. And uh, that's what I did that summer in 1992. Um, you know, playing on the street two to eight hours a day and then just doing a lot of writing and, and practicing um, and getting my shit together. And the street is a really interesting place to shed because you're in a performance capability, um, but you're playing for hours and hours, even then no, no one would watch me. I barely make any money in Boston. Um, and, um, but I was performing all day. So I met, and then I started getting some initial gigs, and then I met my drummer. And this is the kind of thing is why I always say to everybody, one of my mottos is always, always take the gig. Because even if it seems like the shittiest gig, 
And, you know, even to this day, you know, my manager and I battle all the time. Why are you fucking going to do this gig? Well, always take the fucking gig. You don't know who's going to be out there, Drew. You know what I mean? You yep. don't know who's going to be there. It could change your life, even though it's a shitty paying gig for nobody. So this is an example. I, you know, I was at work. I was doing like a phone canvassing for this organization called Peace Action, like, you know, raising money to stop mm -hmm. nuclear weapons testing. And I got a call from a fellow street performer, this guy Fordham Murdy, um, who now goes by Reverend Freak Child. And um, he said, hey, the opening act canceled. Can you come open for my band Banana Fish at the Tam O'Shanter in Boston? So well, I looked over my boss. Hey, Sarah, can I go? Yeah, go ahead. Got my skateboard, fucking went to the gig. You know, <laughs> it was a rainy, cold, Boston shitty night. I played for... I played in front of the band I was opening up for, the sound guy, the bartender, the cocktail waitress, the owner of the club, and one guy who was at the bar uh, looking at the help wanted. Um, and he, he was the cocktail waitress's boyfriend. After I finished, I did my set like I was playing at Woodstock or whatever, you know, finished. And this guy comes out to me, hey, that was, that was pretty good. I was like, oh, thanks a lot, you know, and like, walk start walking away like i got somewhere to go <laughs> mm -hmm. it's like i'm a drummer i was like what <laughs> then we chatted all night and um and jeff was 29 i was 20 and uh he he had been a pretty established drummer by then in boston so you know we talked that night so i missed my train and then he gave me a ride back to jamaica plains where i lived and we made you know arrangements to to put together a band which was just a two-piece at first and then um so we did a couple gigs and an interesting thing was happening we every time we get a gig we get a couple gigs right after like out of it and uh, jeff had this idea he said uh well i think we should have an upright bass player well i had a different band in mind in my mind i had like this kind of really tribal thing with like drums and percussion and maybe steel drums and electric bass and like this you know this kind of swelling thing and um and jeff said let's get a upright bass all right jeff ran this jazz jam there's another funny story so he ran a jazz jam out of the same place the tam o'shanter and um he only allowed upright bass players at his jam so Jimmy Jazz, my bass player, shows up. Well, he had a Fender P bass that he took the frets off of and made it a fretless because he was starting to study jazz. So he showed up. Jeff wouldn't let him play. Send him home. He came, came back uh, with a – he bought himself a cheap upright bass and came back. So, so anyhow, Jeff and I started like auditioning bass players and all the guys, because all the best bass players were going to his jam in town. And that's Boston. This is a lot of heavy cats. Hell yeah. And um, we we did some playing with them and like every, you know, what this, the heart of what I do is super primitive musically. Um, and it was just, you know, the jazz guys, are, it just wasn't their cup of, cup of joe you know so i've played with a couple jazz guys and it is always kind of a like yeah it's a weird it's hard to find the vibe sometimes yeah um so jimmy jazz was interesting because he was really coming from rock and roll he was you know rock and roller and 
he was like a jammer. Like there was a house called Neptune in Boston where this band Chakra, which is now kind of the motet, Dave Watts and him. Were oh, yeah. And so they had a whole scene going and, um, you know. Berkeley kids, right? Yeah, some Berkeley kids and just like freaks tripping out and jamming all night, you know, like mm -hmm. there's always jams there. And um, so he had, he was able to really kind of hone in on what I was doing. Um, and then, you know, musically, Jeff, I was really into hip hop. I was listening to The Far Side, Gangstar, De La Soul, Tribe Quest, Cypress Hill, you know, uh, KRS-One um, and all this stuff. And I would play Jeff my records and then he would be like, oh, that's a cool in the gang sample or that's a meter sample. I'm like, who? You know? Right. And so we had this. So he was interested in hip hop and then I was interested to hear where it was coming from. So uh, he immediately got what I was doing because he was also a blues drummer and he was also a New Orleans cat. So the blues side of what I was doing was totally his wheelhouse. And the root of the hip hop I was listening to was also his wheelhouse. So it was like right away. Uh, and then right away, he is like a great arranger and producer in, in his own, he just has like a lot of ideas, which um, can sometimes be challenging, but he tried to, he immediately like, kind of helped me hone in on how to play with a band and take what I was doing acoustic and kind of say, okay, well, hold on, dude, let's just straighten this out a little bit, not too much, but make it gel. Yeah, I mean, dude, the thing that was so cool is that, yeah, that the drums and bass were kind of this like, yeah, this very technical, thick, thing and it just accompanied you because your your strumming patterns were real unique and there was kind of this like cool uh lackadaisical hip-hop thing to your so it was weird it was like out but in at the same time it was like I, yeah yeah just like i said man was just so so unique and and i too was just a huge old school hip-hop fan um so I, I, funny story dude of, of how i first heard your music was i had heard your name a bunch um you know just growing up and, and kids kids brothers and sisters listening to shit but um my homie dane when i was 15 years old got these mushroom chocolates and he was like hey man my big brother my big brother gave me these these chocolates uh and we ate them and the only cd that i had at my house uh was philadelphonic because it had been okay. given to me so we listened to that cd i think you know six or seven times through and then yeah. I was just, you know, and then I was just hooked. So, so went back um, and dug into the, to all the early stuff too, man. But like, what, you guys made what, nine records as G-Love and Special Sauce, and then you made three solo records. What, like, what would you say like the biggest difference was from like the early stuff to like Lemonade? You know, like what were the biggest transitions that you felt? I guess, um, well, I, I just want to say one more thing about the music and about Jeff real quick, though. Yeah, yeah. One of the interesting things that Jeff always said from the beginning, and he really, uh, he was always like, it's it's all about the space, right? And because we were a trio, we had the space. And then we, because the upright bass and like the wooden sound of the dobro and the wooden sound of the old vintage drums, had a sound right away so that was like a unique sound and then jeff was always like space and he's always like 
the 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 quieter you are, the more people will listen. So that was kind of one of his MOs. So and then now between the early stuff and the you know, you know, after that, shit changed. Every, everything changes. Like so for one thing, there's the thing that like your whole life leads up to your first record, right? And if you're lucky enough to get a record deal, then all of a sudden you get instant, you know, success in a way. And you also just become get thrown into this machine. And this cycle, which is just basically, it's like Neil Young said, everybody knows this is nowhere. You're just going round and round. So you're, you know, you're making a record, you're touring on it, you're writing songs, you're recording, you're making a record, you're touring on it, and then 28 years later happens. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so musically, um, you know, wow. I mean, the first record was kind of this really awesome blueprint and mashup of hip hop and you know funky stuff and did you guys live track a lot of that yeah everything yeah yeah. very few overdubs on that yeah um vocals included actually like we cut the vocals i i cut the vocals into a bullet mic into an amp in the room and then uh another a mic called a c12 that was like a super high five mic so you can hear a lot on your first record. You can hear the ghost of if if there are like if there was a vocal overdub, you can hear the ghost of the original in the room pretty good. Yeah. Um but like yeah, I mean um the second record when we first put the first record out, they didn't know what to do with us. Like you could go to Tower Records in Philadelphia and it would be an alternative. You could go to Tower Records in Boston and it'd be in hip hop. You could go in another place, it would be, you know, and I, I don't know. So no one knew where to put us. We didn't fit in a box, which was good and bad because they didn't know how to market us. And we didn't know anything. We were just, we didn't care about any of that shit. Like, we were just like, I mean, um, it's really hardcore. It's about like our presentation. It has to be live. Like, so they started throwing us on a lot of hip hop bills and it was really hard. Like, uh, and I got to play with everybody. I got to tour with Tribe Called Quest and do shows with Run DMC and KRS-One and all the people I just talked about. And, um, you know, the artists were always super supportive of what we were doing and, and our little thing. But the hip hop crowd, especially in the 90s, was like, no. No, 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 no. Three white dudes playing guitar and no. Like we had some tough gigs, like opening for Tribe Called Quest, and like and jazz gurus, jazz and jazz. Um, it was hard, and then we'd get on a lot of these like music conventions, like the Gavin Convention and New Music Seminar in New York, and they put us on like these hip hop showcases. So like everybody would come on with these dads and DJs, and and it would sound like a club, and then we come on with our like trash can sound. It's like you can't compete sonically, so we're just like. You know what? Coming out of that first year, it was like, fuck hip-hop. That's why our second record is just like blues. Hell yeah. <laughs> and it was cool, but, you know, it was a big mistake. We had we didn't know it, but we were having tremendous success and making this huge connection, but we didn't know because we're doing, riding around the van, you know, 250 shows a year. No one knows what the fuck's going on. Like, we're not making any money. Like, we're just grinding, you know? Like, it was awesome, but like, we didn't really know we were having success until 
until the second record came out and you know we took a u-turn from the musical style and then you know we just didn't the connection dissipated so the energy dissipated so all of a sudden we said oh shit this record's not going so well um and then you felt the energy which was crazy just kind of like start to taper off and that's what you call it the sophomore slump i guess yeah <laughs> so, like, we hit that in a big way and um and so that was a change up and then after that the band broke up yeah oh you did yeah oh man yeah. and then did you guys get back together after like some sort of hiatus there yeah so i here's some questions i have so i'm litigating my first label deal right now and i've done everything independent up to this point and it's why i'm kind of chilling right now because i own all my music so i just right. i'm not i'm not in a position where i'm like freaking out about money because people are listening to our music um talk a little bit about just the industry change from the early 90s to now because like that's what everyone said right in the early 90s it was like no man you have to have a record deal because there right. wasn't you, you know you couldn't pull out your fucking phone and just be like oh i want right. to listen to i heard about this band g love you had to go to the record store and buy a record yeah yeah so yeah, what did I those mean, look was, like then so it was like this like for one thing it was like the music industry was like a million galaxies away, you know, because there was like MTV and there was, you know, Tower Records and there was huge concerts. Um, and that's what you knew when you're a kid. So it wasn't like you were like, I mean, at least for me, I wasn't like a teenager. There was some indie shows and all ages shows going around, but I didn't know about this stuff. So I wasn't hip to like going to like seeing a different era of like independent music. I was just tuning in like, you know, like I said, MTV and stuff, that's what's happening. And then hip hop took off, but that was huge too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it was, um, so you couldn't even, so how would you get a record deal? Well, you can't send your demo to a record label unsolicited. It had to come like through a music attorney or a music manager. It had to come through officially or they would not accept it. It was like illegal to send it to me. So you can't even send them something, right? So you just have to chip away at stuff. So, um, you know, that's that's what we did though, but we're like sending demos to the music conferences and then we did, we got a producer. We started making demos and we, the new music, that was at the Philadelphia Music Conference. And then a new music seminar, we got a manager. And like, so basically after, nine months after Jeff and I had our first gig, we signed a record deal with OK Records, Epic Records. And it was like you went from being on the fringe of society to working as a street musician. You know, now you're working for like one of the biggest corporations in the world, Sony Music. And you, all of a sudden, you know, we got a check for $250,000 to as the advance for uh, an AT&T unlimited calling card. <laughs> yeah, it's like a big signing bonus like yeah yeah we'll pay for your we'll pay for your at&t call so you're at the truck stop hey 1-800 call at&t put in your code and call your girlfriend you know, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> but like uh you know um but it, it was like that like it was the music industry was so flush with cash right so like they were signing what you call developing artists which were people like you know Dave Matthews and Ben Harper and Michael Franti and these are the people that are still around, yeah, you know. Yep. And of course Dave Matthews hit the huge time and you know, Michael and Ben Ben hit a pretty fucking large and Michael has two and 
you know, we've done pretty good too, but I say we're just still developing. Basically, a developing artist is, we don't think you have a hit, but what you're doing is cool enough that we're going to get you going and wait, you know, hopefully you're going to yeah. become a developed artist, meaning you're going to sell some fucking records. I mean, yeah. yeah. Or the deal's kind of based around like, okay, man, here's kind of your money up front, but you don't own any of this shit. This shit's all, anything you make is ours, but here's some money. Yeah, like basically you get an advance and, you know, I think we had a seven record contract with four guaranteed or three guaranteed. And so the first advance was 250. Then the second record went up to like 300 and then, you know, then went up to 325 and then 350. And then, you know, but again, like you said earlier, you know, if if you want to make a record, you're going into a studio and if you're on a major label record, they basically want you to spend, They'll, they'll have you spend the whole budget. They yeah. will, they don't give a fuck. They want, they, they will keep you spending money in a studio lockout back then, you know, for a nice studio is about a thousand dollars a day. And then you yeah. got to pay your band. And it was just the real deal shit. And, you know, you're getting food and literally, you know, the A&R guy would be showing up to the studio with like hookers and smoking cigars and, it was like the, some real, like, uh, record label, real, like, shit that you imagine was happening was happening, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So it was um, it was an interesting time, and, you know, I was a kid, so I didn't give a fuck, fuck about money. You know, I didn't have any, you know, like I said, there was no time to spend any money, and we just were all about the music, so we'd go in to make a record, and then they'd say, all right, we don't hear a hit yet, so go back and book another session you know so that, that was like the third record that's when what was what was the the first song that kind of was it like because i remember like you know like cold beverage i-76 like i remember watching the music videos for those you know um which one was what was the one that you that first kind of like was like okay cool man now we're now we're in yeah it's cold well the first single was blues music and that yep. really was cool for us because it like came out in this really cool way and like people were like oh shit this is something and then then the next single was cold beverage which became like a hit and it got played on mtv like it was on beavis and butthead and if you know we didn't get like maximum spins on mtv but everyone was watching mtv so yeah people this was a real huge thing even if you got some minimum spins on mtv that was big time Still people meant a bunch of people were going to go out and buy the record because they like that oh, track. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is how hardcore we were, stupid, like, or whatever. But I, I, I was like, well, lip syncing is selling out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to make a video lip syncing. So if you want us to make a video, you're going to have to record us playing it on the street. <laughs> so we had this guy, Mark Romanic, who's like a huge, famous video director. He was doing like all the Madonna videos at the time. Well, he has been the record. So he said he did a video for cheap. And they said, all right, well, G doesn't want to lip sync. So they bought a mobile fucking recording studio. I just watched this video last night, dude. And I was like, this isn't the fucking track from the record. They're playing that shit. (laughs) This was crazy because it would come on MTV and it would be like Nirvana, Heart Shaped Box. And then, you know, Pearl Jam, Jeremy, and then G Love playing on the street and it sounds like it's being played on the street yeah <laughs> you know i mean like I, I can only imagine if the record if, if we did that same video with the record track 
I can only imagine that we it would have gotten it would have been much bigger. And um, so that was like a first mistake. But that's still not. so I. That's so fucking cool, though, dude. <laughs> you know, like that's so fucking cool. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it is, but it's like how stupid in a way. Like, why didn't anybody like say no? Fuck that. That's no. So I was pretty hard headed, and and that's I guess it served its purpose. I mean, you know, I don't know. You, you you can't have any regrets, but I I can look back at my career and see some key mistakes. Like like I said earlier, one of them was not continuing the second record stylistically the same as the first and i had another repertoire of songs boom ready to go um that didn't make the first record you know what i'm saying so yeah i was mistaken in a video lip syncing thing these are little things these are little things that like you know dictated how my career would go uh as i look back so you had so there was like the early phase of like the mtv and all that um, in that in that first batch of those kind of hip hoppy songs, and then, you know, where I feel like you became, you know, like when I shared that you and I were doing a song together, like people went ape shit, man, because everybody that I grew up with, you know, like I feel like if you went to parties, if you went to f- parties in high school, when I was growing up, you know, I'm 32 now, it was like, you. Jack, Ben Harper, and Donovan, those were those were all gonna play at the party. Cool. So like, how did how did that how did you and Jack link and how did that whole crew kind of come to be? Because that for me, man, starting off of uh, you know, when I first started writing songs to see, you know, like you were saying, you're trying to find your voice and like and how to write. And and the reason that that crew of y'all that was so inspiring to me was it was like you had this like blues, like you said, that kind of trash canny, very unique sound, but it was like based around folk music. Jack and Donovan was folk music, but with surfing as the like underlying vibe. And then Ben was this like gospel soul. And then Franti was like, you know, military hip hop, public enemy, you know, mixed with you too, you know? So like, how did y'all kind of you and Ben and, Donovan and Jack, how did you guys all meet? Well, so, right, so Franti was the first one, because he had disposable years of hip, hip-hopracy. Yep. That probably dropped in, I think, 91 or not, early. Yep. Maybe, maybe 92, but I remember, having, I remember having that cassette, you know, when I was a street musician. Um, and... Um, so he was well established. And ben and Ben and I probably dropped the same year, and we were so we would start to we heard about each other, like we'd be touring in Europe, and you'd see Ben Harper tour posters. And finally, we met at the Byron Bay, you know, the East Coast Blues Festival in Byron yep. Bay. I'll never forget, because um, by then, like you know, he had gained a certain amount of notoriety and. Um, and actually, I had already seen him play because I saw him play at Laguna Seca Days Festival in Monterey. And that was just an unbelievable music experience, seeing Ben Harper for the first time that day at Monterey Festival after taking acid the night before and going on, like, playing. I think I might have opened the stage that day. Um, and then seeing Ben Harper come on and just, like, come out. He 
the first song he played was Voodoo Child. I mean, I remember the set so clearly. Voodoo Child, he played sexual healing. He played, you know, working, you know, um, working like from the ground on down and, you know, burn one down. It was the set, Drew, man. It was seeing Ben Humber the first time blew me away, bro. I was like in awe. It was unbelievable. And, and I was so in awe that I went backstage and, um, and I kind of like went in his dressing room sometime there. I was like, I have to meet him. And I went in and I was like, I didn't even say my name. I was like, I just had to shake your hand. And then I ran away. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then, so then the next time I saw him was at Byron Bay. And um, I'm walking in the parking lot of this hotel. And, and then I see Ben. It's just me and him, you know, in the parking lot alone. Gee, Ben, like, you know, gave to her a big hug. And it was like, he's like, man how come you didn't tell me who you were that day? I was like, I don't know, man. I just had to show respect. Like I was just in awe, you know? And so we, we, um, that's when we met. And that was probably 96. Right. So then, um, and then we, we toured and, um, that was tough. It was tough because, um, I didn't really get, I didn't really get it. Uh, cause Ben had said like, um, let's, do something you know let's let's tour and let's um let's i want to come to the studio and watch how you work and you got to call me when you come to la and i'll take you around and i just was like wow cool and then um so i called my manager and agent said well ben wants us to come on tour with him so call him up so then my manager comes back well they're giving you a really shitty offer well um okay well i don't care I want to be with Ben. So I went out on tour with Ben and, um, and Ben was like, this is one of, you know, I mean, you know, this late nineties when he's just cranking, he's busy. I don't understand. I thought we were going to like have this super connection and like be best friends and like, but yeah. as it was, we toured for like a month and I felt like I never even got to talk to him. Was it never, we never shared any music. We never shared any time. Um, and I didn't really get it. I didn't really get it that, that he was grinding full speed and had a lot of heat on, you know what I'm saying? I didn't get that. Uh, so I was really upset at the end of the tour. Um, you know, um, and then, it's funny, know. man, you're, I feel like my like big break, if you will, was I had this, I've told this story a bunch of times, but the short version is we got at, you know, I've been a Franti fan since the fucking day. And, um, and we got asked to play these shows in Florida. So I spent every dollar I had, except I spent all but $37 because we played at Janice Live. So in my head, I was like, we're going to open. There's no way he's not going to come out to the balcony and watch the set. Right, and he's right. going he's gonna to fall in love with my shit right. and he's going to take right. us on tour. That's right. actually, that ended up, that was what happened. But oh, same right. thing, you know, we did two tours with him and that was what I had in my head was like dude we're gonna I'm gonna write music with my hero and it's gonna be like this is like no dude he's fucking if you know you know Michael man he's never not working on a new record a documentary right. doing interviews all day you know right so yeah it was the same thing I had in my head was like oh my god you know this is how this is gonna be and yeah and he yeah. and he's more available than most but you know it's that that expectation especially when you say yes to a tour like you're saying where it's like yeah yeah, the money's not dope. It's not about the money. It's about like this opportunity to build with someone that, you know, is the fucking man, you know, that I think I could vibe with. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, anyways, so that, that was Ben and I, and then, um, 
of course, over the years, we've done a lot of collaborations since then. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and it's been, I don't see or talk to him much, but when we do, it's, it's always just great. And, and I've just remained such a huge, huge fan of him. And to me, phenomenal. He's always been one of the greatest guitar players, singer, excuse me, singers, and just every, everything of our generation. And I, um, I have often, you know, to me, I've put him on such a pedestal that and and he has obviously gotten great success but i've always felt too that like you know and i think he struggled with that feeling like he should be bigger even though he's huge like he should be like your know, pearl jam or jack johnson on that level like he's he's just you know he's he's not and he, he'll still get to headline some festivals and stuff but you know he's not on that level as far as like commercially success so i feel like that eluded him some much to like i didn't i to me it was always but anyway so then along comes jack <laughs> so it's it's interesting you bring it up because it, it's 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 really interesting for me just being a part of it to see how everything reacted to jack when he came out so i met jack first and um you know he was uh college kid with a guitar a friend of a friend of my friend scott Sowens, who's a who's a surf fashion skate photographer and filmmaker who was working with these guys making surf films and he said hey garrett there's this kid jack johnson he's got this awesome song rodeo clowns you got to hear it he's a huge fan can we come by the studio when we're making Philadelphia on it i said yeah come by the hotel we went for a surf you know jack said hey you want to jam out he goes i know you do it professionally i'll never forget he goes i know you do this you know like this is your job so if you don't want to jam no problem i was like no man let's hang out so we traded songs and uh you know he's playing basically his whole first record and i'm thinking fuck man this guy's like so good like but the part of me is like he's just a kid you know with the guitar but i was like no wait something's going on here he's playing all these songs and i felt like i was in the midst of greatness because he's playing these songs it's so effortless just like it still is the yep. songs the lyrics were so um just thoughtful and engaging and just the songs were unique. The flow was, what is he doing? Is he rapping? Is he singing? Like, it's wow. And, and I said, play, had to play Rodeo Clans like four times. We just played Rodeo Clans over and over again. So I had worked out my solo and stuff. And, um, you know, he had this song called um, Inaudible Melodies, which yep. originally went slow down, Bruce. Cause it was about Bruce Lee moving too fast to yeah. the frames couldn't catch him. So he goes, well, should I change, should I say slow down Bruce or should I just slow down everybody? I was like, yeah, you know, you should probably say slow down everybody, which is what he did. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so then I said, well, let me get his demo. So he gave me a demo. I took it back to my producer T-Ray and they, we were at that point in the recording where the label was saying, as they always did, you we don't have a hear a hit yet. You need a single. All right. Well, I got a fucking single now, motherfucker. So, um, and it's called Rodeo Clowns. And so T Ray said, yeah, we're gonna cut this. So I called Jack. Good news, we're gonna cut your song. So cool. And he goes, I don't know, I gotta think about it. What? What? <laughs> think about it. What are you just dropped like a, a mil, you know, just dropped like a the greatest opportunity, you know, because I was in the peak of my career and this is the nineties. There was fucking ching everywhere. So, um, 
coming back the next day. Well, I thought about it. Would you want to do it, you know, as a collaboration, as a duet? I said, well, I never did something like this. All right, fuck it. Yeah, let's do it. So two days later in the studio, T-Ray puts up a hip hop beat on MPC. Jack and I play it. Jack nails it in like the first take. Doubles his vocal, one take. Puts a harmony on it, one take. Plays his guitar licks on it, one take. And then you have basically him and I playing the song to the beat. His performance is complete. It's awesome. I got a cool guitar solo in it. Done. And then they're like, gee, you got to cut your vocal on it. I'm like, fuck that. This shit sounds too good. I was like, Jack, I was like, I don't even want to do it. And like, I can't, I can't do your flow. I really disheartened. I can't do this, man. And plus, I was like, I don't want to do it. I don't, I don't really want to send someone else's rap. You know, I, I was feeling really weird about it. And so Jack said, well, look, you know, I really, yeah, I really mean a lot. I was like, take this, take this demo, this cassette demo. <laughs> you can get, I guarantee you, you will get a record deal. Um, and he said, no, I really want you to. So I, I tried to do a vocal. So if you listen to that track now, what you'll hear is, Two lead vocals of Jack's, Pam. Yep. His harmonies, and then you hear mine, just a single vocal on top. So it's like this huge vocal stack the whole time. But, um, and you can hear that, like, my vocals doesn't really gel exactly with as good as I'd like it to with Jack's. But anyway, it ended up being a single. I told my A&R guy, I said, you need to sign this guy. He goes, well, is he a star? He goes, not like Elvis or me, but. <laughs> and he didn't sign him his name michael kaplan was an r guy who later signed modest yahoo and um he didn't sign jack if he did you know he'd probably still be have a job at sony music or but um so that was that and then um and then we just made it well for better or for worse like we didn't have i just fired my manager and hired my best friend to be my manager and we we're just getting going and figuring out what our path was going to be we didn't really have the wherewithal or this notion to, to kind of tie Jack to some kind of management deal and take him on. And then in the meantime, Ben Harper's manager, uh, this guy, JP Plunier, who's no longer with Ben, but JP's a great guy, although we've struggled in our relationship through the years. But um, JP, so JP starts sniffing around. And I remember going to Jack's show at the Mint and JP was there and I was like, what, what the fuck is he doing here? You know what I mean? Like, I was like, get off my turf, motherfucker. <laughs> you know, so then, so then, so then the next thing that's happened that JP offered Jack to open for Ben, right? Mm -hmm. they, and he put together Adam and Merlo backing because Jack had this first unit, which was kind of just- Yeah, Jack's another one that has one of those backing bands that's just like, you know who those dudes are when you hear them play and you're just like man yeah. they're not overplaying they're just serving the fucking song you know yeah and and to tell you the truth like the band that he had first before jp hooked him up with adam and Marilo, it was kind of like watching any bar band yeah you know it was that it was that's how much that those two guys with those two guys that sound they came with that's what worked right um, but anyhow, so then, 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 um, like I said, we didn't really have, we didn't have our shit together. So we missed this opportunity. 
which JP and Ben's camp took right away, took, took him on tour, which we should have done. And then they recorded his first record for $5,000, which we should have done. And JP produced it. And, um, you know, I think by that time, JP was initially a big fan. And then I think he kind of, kind of lost kind of love for what we were doing. And so he didn't invite me to be on the first record, which was, which was a little bit of a bummer on Jack's first record, you know, cause I imagine that, um, but Ben was on it. So, and then Jack just blew sky high and it was the weirdest thing because, um, do you think, do you think Jack's, you know, how I first heard his music was, was in that movie out cold. Okay. okay. I and don't I know his music was in it. That's the only music that's in there. Is the music oh, for no yeah, his first record is the soundtrack for that movie, and it's always like lightly playing in the background, you uh -huh. know. So, yeah, it's, it's really you know, his, you know, his manager Emmett Malloy directed that movie. Oh, no, shit. well, that makes yeah, sense, yeah. okay? <laughs> so, but that was how that was how I heard his heard his music. I just kept hearing this background, I was like, who the fuck wow. is this, you know? Right. Um, what do you think was the like because, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, there's there's levels, and it's like, you know. Jack can play fucking four shows a year, you know, and fucking, you know, sell a couple million tickets at four fucking shows, dude. It's just like, it's, it just blows me away because I listen to his music and again, it's, it's so good, but it's just so easy to listen to and it's so palatable. Yeah. Even when he's writing political shit, it's like yeah. just below the radar that unless you're really paying attention to what's going on in the world, you don't know what the song's about. Right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah, he just he has yeah, just this perfect it, it kinda blend. Fucked everybody, yeah, it kind of fucked everybody up. Like um, to tell you the truth, just because you know Jack, obviously you've seen him perform. He's the same. He's you know he's one of my best friends. And but when when you know when we see him perform, well, just... it, it, it's especially like when you think about like how Ben Harper his what I call attack. You know, and certainly there's a lot of finesse, but there's a lot of big things going on with his band and then there's a lot of and same thing with our band is this attack and jack didn't bring any attack it's just this late super laid back thing and it was kind of fucked everybody up everybody was like it seems so effortless like he's not even trying but he's playing like you said for like millions of people and he's selling all his records and holy shit like what are we doing wrong ben harper and you can see that's when ben harper put out his song steal my kisses which was a hit for Ben, but also it was kind of like for what Ben was doing. It was really like strummy and just kind of middle of yep. the road. I mean, it's don't get me wrong; it's really cool and it's a hit. But Ben wouldn't have come with that track, right? Sure. And the, the beatboxing thing was his buddy Nick, who was like his drum tech. Who the beatbox was like my homie, and um, so Ben wouldn't have done that track if Jack never came along. It just wouldn't have entered the, the situation. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and then my writing started changing because like, the, the my first record I did with Brushfire was the Hustle. Yep. And on that record, I was like, really tuning into what Jack was doing because of course I was now I was on the road opening up for him at like these massive shows, and it was a mind fuck. It was like, wow, this kid was just like a college kid, and now he's like the hugest rock star. And we like, were just talking about this last night with my wife because I was like, because we watched, um, yeah, we were watching, it had to have been something from that tour because it, it was, it was, it was both of you guys playing rodeo cons together, actually. And I was telling Summer, you know, uh, you know, I'm from Chicago, man. And, and I used to see you 
at least once a year at the Vic. You know, I had all, all of my homies worked at the Vic. So it was like, if you or Franti or anyone I liked, they would just hit me up and be like, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm through. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that was something that struck me because when I, I still have never seen Jack live, but every time I watch, yeah, he's just sitting there playing the songs. And I remember uh, the first time I saw you, band comes out and it's dark and you sat down in this chair and you guys start playing blues music. And it like this like vibe just like slowly raised. And then you like kicked the chair out and like got up and I forget what you guys went into, but I was just like, oh shit. You know, like <laughs> it was like, it was a fucking show. It was just like, you know, I took a lot of cues from that of just like, and Franti too, you know, like yeah. I think, I don't think I'm the best musician in the world, but I took a lot of cues from watching you and Franti right. in that way and was just like, okay, well, when I step on a stage, I just got to make sure everyone knows that it's mine. That like, right, right. <laughs> this yeah. is my fucking zone. Right, uh, right. Yeah, and so much, so much of that was, was from watching you and just the way that you could work a crowd and, um, and knew when to bring the vibe high and then when to calm it back down. Right, right. Um, and, and yeah, to, to what you're saying, that, that's something that I, I literally was just saying to my wife last time. I'm like, it's so crazy that this took off because the thing is here the whole time. Yeah, it's it's crazy and and but it's super profound and like deep and like it always Jack's voice is the gel and it's the butter and it's the writing too. But it's yep. like the songs. It's like wow, like talking about making a connection with a generation. And it was just crazy because it you know, whether Ben or I met him, it would have happened anyhow. Jack's that yep. great. Yep. And like and, and just his whole like I said, it's it's just I've ended up learning so much about music and putting on a show and writing and everything else from Jack who learned a lot from me. So it's, it's just been this tremendous relationship. And, um, but it, 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 it is that thing that just to be honest, it was a real mind fuck in the late nineties thinking like, what are we doing wrong? You know what I mean? Like, why is, <laughs> yeah. why is that the thing? You know what I mean, wow. I couldn't, couldn't get it. And, um, and and you know then over time we realize okay and it's just interesting because he's made an indelible mark on culture and music and we need to talk about Jack all day but the last thing I will say to toot his horn is like everybody out here is singing about changing the world and making the world a better place and love and everybody and that's our job right but Jack's actually like put his money where his mouth is like he's raised like you know probably fifty million dollars for the environment you know I mean yeah. and, and really yeah you know, i remember like, i remember reading his uh my manager a couple years ago sent me his writer um and it's not just like yo here's what i want backstage it's like no single use plastics these right. kind of lights you have to use and i was just yeah. like man how fucking cool to yeah. be at the level where you can ask for this ridiculous shit and everything is based around the environment not like oh i want a fucking giant baby bottle full of you know fucking jello that you're like yeah. using using your platform to right. to make the world a better place man i think yeah. that's so cool and he's and he's always had that you know every yeah. single every single record he puts out there's an element of that i think that's super fucking cool and the last thing i'll say about jack is like he's he, since the day i met him like i think the other interesting thing about it is like i think he was most surprised out of everybody about the right. level of, that's the and it never changed him um you know like he and our thing is his wife, like they were basically married the whole time. Yeah, they they got married before he hit it. And um, 
she's been just a tremendous like rock and stability and like their family. So it, it's interesting. Um, the unassuming rock star. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> the biggest ever, you know? Yeah. I think that's so fucking cool. Um, yeah. So being that you have, you know, 12 formal releases and then a bunch of fucking EPs and bootlegs and shit like that. How do you make a set list when you are ah. like, do you do like, cause I've been open about this, man. We do the same set list for a whole tour. We might be like, Oh, let's throw this in this night. But I like putting on a show, you know? So okay. we re we rehearse a like, and then at this point you'll do this and I'll go out in the crowd yeah. and do that, you cool. know? So, but when you're making a set list, how do you pick what you want to play? Man, Drew, it's like the hardest. It, it, this is like a thing. It's like, I'm glad he asked the question because, yeah, yeah, we got our repertoire, our catalog is so big now. And so the other thing, you want to play your newest shit, right? Yep. And you want to play whatever shit you're working, like your record. Like you want to play stuff that no one even knows, like your newest <laughs> shit that's not even released and recorded. And then you want to, you have to play the shit you're working, like your latest record. Yep. And then you have to, to some extent, play some what of the fan favorites that they're paying for. And then you got to try to fit in some some deep cuts so that your hardcore fans can't be like, damn, all they did was play uh, the same songs. And then and you got your band saying, well, Jeff, our drummer, he wants to like, he, he just really wants to mix it up and play all these tunes. And, um, and then did you try to remember all the fucking tunes? That's what I always tell the boys. I'm like, you guys don't have to remember the words. I can remember the music all day. I'm the one that has to go back and remember all the fucking words. <laughs> exactly, which is no small feat. And then, and then you got, a, then you have the time. It's like I, I, the time's like this lurking thing, of, um, a monkey on my shoulder during the show because I want to play. I want to play too much. I want to play. I want to get to all this music every night. But then you realize, like, well, the crowd, if you, you know, you don't want to lose the crowd. You want to end the show on a climax with the whole house there. That's how you should end a show. But your whole crowd, especially as they get older, doesn't want to be there for two hours, doesn't want to be there maybe for 90 minutes. What's the yep. perfect set length? So that's another huge thing. Like, I've been really trying to figure out, I'm, I'm trying to put on, I'm trying more and more just to like make sure that I get off the fucking stage because not because I don't want to play. I do want to play. It's just that, like I said, I want to end the show with the most people there and sure you can play a four hour show and you will have people that stay the whole time, but not most. No. Unless you're like the grateful dead or fish where they're yeah, just right. like, where it. people expect that. Yeah. Dude, it's funny. I have a funny story. One time at the Vic, uh, me and my homie went and saw you. And we had kind of worked our way towards the front and this fucking drunk college bro, man, he just kept screaming, my baby's got sauce, my baby's got sauce. And at one point it was at this like super spaced out kind of like jazz jam that you guys were doing that was just fucking yeah. vibes, man. And, and I remember I turned to this kid and was just like, yo, I will fucking vacate you. If you do not stop screaming at this man, I'm going to fucking vacate you from the show, dude. Shut the fuck up, you know? Man, I was, when I had Keller on the podcast, we were talking about that too, where he's just like, man, you know, slip me a note or something. If you want to hear a song, don't fucking scream at me, you know? Okay. You have, do you have any songs that you're tired of playing? I mean, honestly, no. I mean, I, I love playing 
um, I love playing all the songs and I love, like, I just laugh to myself when people want to, sometimes when I'm playing, you know, songs like Baby Got Sauce or Cold Beverage, obviously those are some of the ones that we get a lot of yelling for. Um, and you, you know, the funny thing is you can play it and then people still yell for it. Like, motherfucker, we just played it. You just, yeah, that's, that's what Keller was <laughs> saying too. He's like, fuck, man. It's like, are you not, like, you just want to yell, but, um, I just laugh to myself because I'm like, oh, this is fucking awesome. I mean, this, how, what is it that, that doesn't need to ask yourself about these certain songs? What is it about these fucking, this song as opposed to all these other great songs I think I have that, why is that the one? You know, you, See, you can never tell. Isn't that funny, man? So we have yeah. a song called I Am, and it's, it's, it's the song that feeds my family every month. Sure. Um, and I, it's just not a song. When I recorded it, I was like, you know, it's a filler track. Let's throw it in there. I thought it was yeah. kind of a little, like a little bit of an overshare. So I was like, I don't uh -huh. even know if I want to put it on. Oh. Um, and it seems like every song where I'm like, this is going to be the fucking one is never the one. Right. They always <laughs> like same thing on our last, uh, on our last record, the, the highest stream song on our last record was the song that I like the least. Wow. So I just said, like, it just goes to show me. I'm just like, you know, my manager said to me one time, I forget what artist I was talking about, but some pop artist, I was like, man, that shit's garbage. And it's like, eh, you know, there's like a billion people that would disagree with you. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. You know, it's yeah. all pretty relative. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Cause like, like for instance, like that lemonade record you're talking about, that was like a pretty big record for us. Um, and the record right before it was this record called, or no, the record after it was superhero brother. And that record was not a big record for us. It was like, you know, commercially didn't do well at all. And I thought um, Lemonade, I finished the record and I was like, well, it's, it's kind of middle of the road. Like I was just like, that I, didn't shit was like dope. I didn't feel, really feel challenged by the record. You know, the Superhero Brother, I like had done all this work on all these guitar parts and I felt like, wow it's really something special <laughs> and no i give a fuck and then and then same thing like um two records ago we did this record called love saves the day and man i remember jimmy Taz and i finished the studio we're like man we fucking did it and this is yeah <laughs> and no one you know again that, that was that it didn't pan out it's 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 interesting yeah as artists we're kind of fucked because the stuff that we think is the thing might not be the thing yeah yeah it's such a weird thing man yeah i really lemonade was like that was like i remember that summer you know i remember that summer where that was like regularly spun and 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 honestly man you know my one of my best friends Corey's, uh who i'm sure will listen to this when it's released but you know i remember that record was when he really kind of started pushing me of like man you could do this shit like this is your vibe dog like there's no reason you couldn't do this shit and and that record really I don't know, man. Yeah, kind of like imprinted in my head of like, man, I could do this. I could be a songwriter, you know? Like, I should start putting yeah. my shit out. I mean, it took 10 years for me to get my shit together enough to do it. But yeah, I love that. And that Ben Harper collab on that is just like, that's a fucking vibe, dude. That's a sick Oh, vibe. dude, that, that's, that's what's funny thing about Ben. Like, there's so funny when did that track because at that point I was like, man, I don't even know if Ben wants, ben wants to be friends with him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Jeff Jeff was talking to Ben because he had a show on like we had Bonnie Raitt in Atlantic City and invited him to the studio and he fucking came and I was like I can't figure out Ben because 
one minute I think like he doesn't want me around and the next minute he's like taking a full day showing up at our studio with like a shit ton of gear and like fucking lacing this track and that was the coolest track because it's featuring Ben Harper and Mark Broussard and I, we just had this like two chord groove and it was kind of two songs we combined into one so Ben Harper kind of takes the first part and then we had so then we had Ben Harper came in and played like this slide the wives and born through a beer can amp and this minor tuning and it was the craziest thing and then he wrote this verse which was like so poignant and so cool and he wrote it right in the spot and then we had this track with me and Ben on it. Was and this thing needs more, so we hit up Mark Broussard's coming in town. And Mark, he's a fucking stud, man. Such dude, great tunes. He, he fucking comes in like he had been like staying down somewhere in Delaware, having Philadelphia by this place, Dave and Buster's, which is like the adult. Yeah, yeah, days. yeah, yeah. And I guess he was like going by, and I, which is like the lamest place. And I talked to Mark, I'd be like, "What are you doing?" He's like. Oh, you know, he was oh, we're over here to fucking uh, Dave Buster's. What the fuck are you? Why are you with Dave Buster's? <laughs> so, like, he comes in the studio loaded. He's fucking loaded. First thing he does is see the Bob Tequila. Yo, let me hit that. And then Chris goes, hey, you want some bong hits? You know, so now he's completely loaded times two. And I was like, I said to him, I was like, yo, man, are you, are you okay? Are you going to be able to do this? And he looks at me and goes, what you think? I came in here to suck. <laughs> and I was like, oh shit all right so he went in the studio and he's he started singing and it was like the fucking whole world fell away it was one of the greatest things i've ever seen in the studio and then to be on a track with ben harper and like your yeah, ben's performance is unbelievable and then mark came in and was just like whoa the vocals i mean with ben and mark on it but just to hold your own and and really just be right there with Ben Harper on the track vocally. He's like, holy shit. Yeah. Blown away. <laughs> yeah, that's that's badass, man. I kind of miss that, you know, like I that's the thing. We just don't record like that. You know, we we do yeah. everything kind well, of we got our collab. Yeah. But you see how I mean though, dude, is that's how we record yeah. now in the 21st century. It's just like, oh yeah, you do it at your crib. I, I'll I gotta say I love the track and like I love the lyrics and like it was cool talking to you about the sentiment. Like cause I always want I, it's one thing I really try to hone on now. Like what's this because you might be writing lyrics, but I don't might not really know what you're talking about unless you tell me. Yeah. And you said it's like about like going back on the road and you know, after being off for a minute and just getting ready to bring that love and do that performance i was like oh okay i get it so then um and then i had written some vocals and then and then my son aiden who's like also a producer and he's making his own records um and he's like doing cool hip-hop it was really cool working with him because uh he was helping me like you know with lyrical choices it was a really cool session session for us man so yeah man you know so to speak on that I like I can't even tell you what a full circle it is for me to get to make a song with you. Like, you know, I was so inspired by your work, man. My my whole entire, like I said, you know, from that the first time I did mushrooms up until you know now where I like do this for a living, man. I'm just I've always been deep in your catalog and just have so much love and respect for your art, man. So to get to make a song with you, like I can't I can't even tell you, man. Like as a as a songwriter and a musician and a fan. You know, it's just, it's, it's a fucking dream come true, man. And and when we got your stems back, uh, you know, we plugged them in and I was like, this is exactly 
Okay, That's cool. exactly <laughs> what I heard in my head, man, because, you know, and not just your verse, but like the harp, you know, the vibe, like it just, the song is such a just like chugging, traveling. Yeah. So you put, and then you put that harp on and it's just like, you know, it's this vibes, dude. It ended up exactly how I heard it in my head. So I can't. Yeah, I, think, I think people are going to dig it. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a great, I mean, it was, it, you had a great song. And so thanks for having me on. Um, so uh, yeah, hope I was able to add something to it, which I feel like I did. It was, it was, um, I'm happy with it. Um, it's cool. You gotta, you gotta do the session with your son too, man. That's super badass. Yeah. I can't wait to hear the, like the finished mix and everything like that. So. Yeah, man. I'm like I said. I'm in. I'm. I'm fucking litigating this deal right now and trying to get the money right and trying to get the terms right. You know, I have this. Yeah. Big, I'm real staunch on owning my shit, so it's like cool. you know, this back and forth right now is like banging my head against the fucking wall. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I got I got these standard questions that I ask everyone on the podcast, and then uh, and then I'll cut you loose, man. Um. I think I know the answer because you kind of spoke on it a little bit at the beginning, but what was the first record or song that you heard that made you cry? Oh, first song I heard and made me cry. Um, I don't, that, that's, uh, well, I just have, I just can remember listening to Neil Young's Lonesome Me and smoking a Winston cigarette out of my ninth grade bedroom because my uh, little girlfriend had dumped me. <laughs> so that, I, I, I don't know that. I, that was yeah, probably, that counts. Yeah. Great. Uh, what was the first record uh, that made you know you that you wanted to? <laughs> I'm a huge Neil Young fan, by the way. We actually, uh, you brought up Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. When we did our show, session we did an acoustic cover of that song you should check that out cool i uh, uh, love it so what was the first record that you listened to that made you know you for sure want to do do that with your life that you wanted to to make records i think that john hammond record that was yeah. uh yeah. it's called country blues it's solo acoustic recorded in 1962 his versions of renditions of a lot of different blues guys um and the minute i heard that cover i think side a starts with states fair blues side b starts with traveling riverside blues robert johnson song but whatever song was first either traveling riverside or states fair blues i put that on and that sounded a delta blues and the way john plays that changed my life that moment i was like that's that's what i want to do that's that's what i'm looking for that's it and that was it yeah that's badass man what is your favorite or actually i'll give you three Name three uh, influential hip hop records. All right, um, De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising. Um, yep. Boogie Down Productions by Any Means Necessary. Ooh. And um, I, I guess um, man, it's, it's so hard because it's more like ten, but ha, I got and then I have to say Eric B and Rakim, Paid in Full, because that was the first thing I rapped. Yep. <laughs> The lyrics for Paid in Full, that's really how I got my style because I was a street musician and, you know, as as a, you know, you know, um, just straight up, like as a white kid growing up in Philadelphia with a lot of like African-American friends from like basketball and skateboarding and stuff like that, um, it wasn't really an option to be a white rapper like because <laughs> white people didn't rap and that was, except for yeah. like the Beast Boys and Third bass and vanilla ice who everyone hated so it was like 
everyone was like huge hip hop fans, but it wasn't like you could be a rapper. I mean, it was really like that. It wasn't like you, you couldn't be a rapper. If, you know, that's how you felt. But you could be a fan, and I was. And I was really into the hip hop culture. Like I was breakdancing, I played basketball, I wrote graffiti, skateboarding was kind of part of the hip hop culture. Um, so I was a street musician, I'm playing my blues riff, and then I started, and I had a beer in me and a joint, and I, I started rapping the lyrics for Eric B and Rakim, paid in full, which of course I knew by heart like everybody else. And that was it, I said, holy shit, that's it. And then I wrote my first rap that week about bicycle couriers in Philadelphia. So that was it. So Eric B and Rakim paid in full. That's <laughs> awesome, man. It's funny, uh, I just had my homie Big Samir from a hip hop group called The Reminders on. Uh, and he also said that that was one of his favorite records, but he had a similar story. He said that that record, Payton Foley, was like, that was the first record that I would listen to and I could rap every word from from front to back, you know? And he, he was like, that's the one. Man. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> man. Yeah, the legends. Uh, what's your favorite punk rock band? Um, I got to be honest, like I have completely missed the anything to do with punk rock. So I don't even, I don't even, um, I guess um, is um, the the Sex Pistols. I don't know. I don't know. Like um, there's this song "Waiting Room." Fugazi is that punk yep. rock? I like yep. that song. But yeah, yep. like that whole thing, I totally missed it. And actually, yeah. it was going on in the '80s when it was really happening. Um, and um, yeah, I was like listening to blues and hip hop. Totally sure. missed it. Don't know anything about it. Yeah that's respect respect work. yeah re respect that's awesome though yeah i mean dude that's kind of why i always vibe with your shit too because i grew up skateboarding into hip-hop doing graffiti and shit like that and like i said it was like i also like folk music but i was kind of like quiet about liking folk music for a while you know because i was right. like no man i just listen to hip-hop and punk rock and shit revolving around this culture you know and uh and yeah, you were you and Franzi were kind of the things where I was like, but check this shit out. You know, it was like this is a, this is the bridge. This is the bridge to it. Right, um, right. What are three records that you're really loving right now? Anything? What What are three records that you're really digging on right now? Um, this year I really liked Citizen Cope's new record, um, Heroin and Helicopters, um, and um, and. Uh, this is where you find out that G Love doesn't listen to any new music, <laughs> other than like the shit I'm working on. I like your new record because I because I know that one song. Um, but wait, what else? What else? If I um, could be old the, shit too. It doesn't have to be new, but just what you're listening uh, to right now. Um, CNN. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no. Um, let's see. What, what else have I been vibing on? Um, you know. Um, I mean, I like to listen to Grateful Dead. Um, and you know, at home we listen to like, you know, I like a lot of rec old vinyls. So I like to listen to a lot of old blues and I like to listen to like hip hop, like, you know, Wu-Tang Clan. I just, I kind of slept on Wu-Tang Clan because it, they, they frightened me. It, it was frightening to me <laughs> in the early nineties, like their whole thing. Like I want nothing to do with that shit. Nothing. Yeah. And then like when old DB got big, like his whole vibe was just like, no, I don't want to know about this shit. Like that's turning me off. And then I fucking started listening to Thirty Six Chambers, and it was like, oh fuck, I missed this. And then like that was it. Like Jizz has become one of my favorite all those guys. So like that whole Wu Tang journey, and that was a cool journey to watch the 
the show that the series that was on um about yeah their come up i really enjoyed that so wu-tang clan and um citizen cope's new shit and um i know there's someone else i want to i want to be talking about like um more contemporary um but like you know like it, it, um fuck I don't know. I'm just drawing a blank right now. Like, yeah, um, that's that's like when someone hands you a guitar and is like, "Hey, man, play a song," and you're like, "Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know ten thousand, but which one to choose?" Right, um, <laughs> dude. I've been uh, I've been digging this band called the Steel Drivers. You know who Chris Stapleton is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he had this this kind of bluegrass band before he really took off and did his solo thing that I've been, oh, I cool. just, I can't quit listening to him. And I've been yeah. listening to the dead a lot too. I feel like that always happens to me in the summer as mm. I, as I start turning to a lot of the old live dead stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. I love it. Well, um, yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate you taking time to, uh, to link with me, man. And uh, hopefully when the world gets back to normal, we can, uh, we can link and play some music together in real time. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, Hell yeah, brother. Um, well, well, hey, man, Drew, thank you so much. And um, big shout out to all your fans. Um, thanks for having me. And I'm um, excited about our track. And uh, yeah, excited to connect with you. Yeah. Um, and I uh, look forward to uh, the music and the jams to come. Yes, sir. Big love to your family, man. I'll send you that track sometime this week. All right. Appreciate all it, right. brother. Peace, brother. Peace. Peace. Yeah. Peace. All right. Dude, so what's a total bummer about this episode is um, I went rafting the day that we recorded this last week. So I had to cut it short because uh, my son and his buddy and uh, and our homie that was taking us rafting uh, were waiting for me. Um, and it's the first podcast that I've had where I felt like I could have just kept going. Like, I feel like G and I could have talked for three hours. Um, he's a sharer, and I'm also a sharer. And I just, dude, I just have so many questions for the dude. Um, but maybe we'll have him on again. Um, but yeah, this is the first episode that I really didn't, didn't want to end. I try to keep them all to an hour. Um, Asia, I, I could have went for another six hours with Asia for sure too. <laughs> but with G, man, I just I'm such a huge fan um, and love him so much. But anyway, next week on the podcast, uh, I'm either going to do a solo one, or I also have, uh, uh, in my opinion, the well, probably the greatest striking coach uh, in MMA, Tyler Wombles. Um, we'll see if I can get Tyler locked down, and if I can't, then I'll do another solo one. Um, and just kind of tell you what I've been up to. Um, but regardless, as always, there'll be a podcast on Friday. I love y'all. Take care of each other. Peace.